Hello, everyone. Welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting and the former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. I was also the Assistant Secretary of Commerce and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We are a monthly offering of the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to support our post-pandemic national recovery. In today's episode, I decided to add one more story in our blue economy uh, connection to national security. And so this is the third in a kind of sub-series on that topic. Remember that last month we explored some of the spin-offs from military research and development that contribute to the blue tech sector and vice versa how ocean industries are supporting our military. We also discussed how the U.S. addresses sustainability. And then the month before that, our producer Tyler Buckingham and I paid tribute to my old ship, the USS Kitty Hawk, and we examined how the U.S. Navy makes such measurable contributions to coastal economies. Well, today we have a really special topic with a military connection. We are going to learn about Project Recover, a nonprofit that is using blue tech to find, recover, and repatriate the remains of fallen U.S. service members that have been missing in action. Now, I'm just delighted today to introduce to you the founder of Project Recover, Dr. Pat Scannon, PhD and MD. Pat, thanks for being here. Happy to join you, Tim. All right. And we are also joined by the current Chief Executive Officer of Project Recover, Dr. Derek Abbey. Derek, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to join you, Tim. Excited to talk. Well, this is just great. We met about a week or two ago, and uh, I, had, I had been following Project Recover for some time because when I was at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, we funded an effort to recover uh, a section of the ship, USS Abner Reed. The stern section was blown off and, and sank, containing over 70 sailors and who lost their lives during the Battle of Kiska in World War II up in the Aleutian Islands. And um, a, a neat thing about that, uh, the Project Recover team included my Scripps classmate, Dr. Eric Terrell, and he is currently at Scripps right now, and he was using Office of Naval Research funding and NOAA funding to operate autonomous underwater vehicles to identify, to detect, identify, and locate the that part of the ship. And it was such a great story. I remember I provided a quote for the press release, and it just was such a neat thing to me, being a veteran, being a big fan of our, our, our national security enterprise and all that we've accomplished in our past. And so that's what led me to this great team. And I'm not going to anchor on just blue tech. I really want to talk all about Project Recover and what a special what a special effort it is. So let me begin first with uh, Pat Scannon. Now, Pat, you founded this over 10 years ago. Can you can you tell us how this all began? Yes, it's actually closing up on uh, 30 years. Oh gosh! Um, and um, I uh, was part of a team in 1993 that went to Palau, a dive team to search for a ship that had been sunk by then Ensign George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, it was uh, time to the uh, 50th anniversary um, of World War II, and we located it. Um, but while I was there, 
um, instead of um, going to all of the great dive sites that are in Palau, um, I, I was so intrigued by the history of World War II in that part of the Pacific that I uh, hired a guide and told him to take me to wrecks. And there's plenty of wreckage from World War II still in Palau. And one of the places he took me to was a wing. And that wing um, uh, I recognized pretty quickly was uh, an American wing. Um, and it was in shallow water, jumped off the boat in um, somewhere between the 20 feet from the boat to the wing, uh, it sunk into me that something bad had happened here. And um, I began wondering about the crew. Uh, and that led me to conduct more searches when I got home and found out there were many planes missing just in the area of Palau alone. And I, I dedicated myself to um, looking for and finding those, uh, those missing aircraft. And I've been doing it ever since. Well, that, that's interesting, Pat. I knew uh, you've done so much since then that, that that's kind of what I'm aware of. But you, you, this was, were you just doing a recreational dive at the time? Um, at the time, I, yes, it was, it was really what you might, the, the look for the ship um, was sort of, you might call it amateur underwater archaeology uh, in the sense that there was no formal investigation. It was really to locate the site of that, um, that ship. And I, I would go one step back and say, when I found the airplane, I was I was just a, you know, a uh, a guest in the country of Palau. I I I didn't, you know, I've got a lot of training in a lot of areas, but archaeology is not one of them. I mean, closest I came to it was I built model planes when I was a kid, and that's why I recognize this to be the wing of a B twenty four. I remember the shape from models that I had built as a boy. Wow. Well, wow. you've done so much good since then in the area of Palau and elsewhere. Um, that's terrific. Uh, let me go back to your current CEO, Derek. And Derek, your, your background's interesting. You were in the Marine Corps, and I believe that's how you learned scuba. That, was that, that kind of what gave you a little bit of an introduction uh, to come into Project Recover? Well, actually, um, I did become scuba qualified while I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, it was just something that I tried out and wasn't sure if I would actually go back to doing it much more after I got my initial um, qualification. But how I got connected to Project Recover was um, I was in a Marine fighter squadron and had connected with a World War II squadron um, at one of the reunions in 2003. Um, it was I was in a, a squadron called BMFA-121. Uh, they've been around since World War II. The World War II cadre were having a reunion uh, me and a colleague took a jet out to meet with them, you know, talk about what it was like to fly Corsairs during World War II. They weren't really interested in that. They were more interested in, you know, Marine Hornets in Iraq. And, <laughs> um, so it was just a great time to connect with old cadre and the history of our unit. And through that, uh, they said, you know, you need to meet this guy, Pat Skin, and he's doing these missions to Palau. Uh, you go about once a year and Palau was a location where my squadron had flown out of. And so um, I worked with those World War II cadre and helped them set up their reunion the following year because we were down in San Diego and I thought it would be great to bring them together with the current squadron. And Pat would attend these reunions to interview the veterans and also update them on the work that he was doing overseas. And that's when him and I became 
um, friends. And then he invited me to be in the organization shortly thereafter. Uh, at the time, I was doing quite a few deployments overseas and um, took me a while to go on my first mission. But after one deployment in the Hornet, came back, unpacked the sea bag, uh, repacked the suitcase and met the team in Palau. And we were searching the jungles and the waters of Palau using pretty archaic means, but a lot of research and a lot of hard work. And I was part of my first discovery that year. And it just so happened that that first MIA discovery that I was a part of was also a member of my squadron from World War II. So um, I was pretty much hooked from that point. You know, never fathomed that 18 years later, I'd be doing what we're doing today. But um, yeah, grew up in the organization as a member, became a mission commander. Um, as a nonprofit grew, became a board member. And then a few years ago, they invited me to be, come over and take over as president and CEO. And, you know, here we are. Gosh, I, I didn't know the, all, all that the experience you have with the organization. That's terrific, Derek. And so your first mission, you were still active duty? Yeah, at the time I was still active in the Marine Corps and, you know, I'd stay up my leave and um, we were doing one mission a year to Palau. Um, back then it was typically in the spring. So I would try to coincide my leave with that time. I take leave and join the team and participate in the missions. And again, it was one mission a year back then. Now we're doing, you know, multiple missions a year all over the world. But yeah, for the longest time, it was self-funded. Everybody paid their way, did their own part, uh, had their own roles within the organization. And it was something that I attached myself to and uh, became a passion of mine and, and tried to do it as much as I can every year, never, you know, figuring that we'd be where we are today. But um, now it's a full-time gig and uh, it still remains a passion project of mine. Gosh, I love that. Tell me again, the name of the squadron that you were in and then also you found the remains of that you have that, that connection. Yeah. Um, VMFA 121 was the current, uh, designator, but 121 remains the same as VMF 121 back then. Mm. And it's still VMFA 121 today. They're a JSF squadron based in Iwakuni, Japan. Ha, that's terrific. So we, you found a Corsair, you flew F-18s, and then now they've gone to JSF, Joint Strike Fighters. Correct. That's fascinating. How great. Well, um, wonderful. Now we have a common connection and I don't know if it's Pat or Derek who can answer this question, but I mentioned my Scripps classmate, Eric Terrell, who uh, Dr. Eric Terrell, who leads a center at Scripps, uh, doing all kinds of incredible uh, advanced ocean technology applications. And this is one of many gigs he has, but he's part of your team. How did you all meet him? Well, I'll start. I was in uh, Palau um, on a mission um, in, I think, 2012. And they and and Eric Terrell and uh, his uh, colleague Mark Moline were in Palau doing some uh, underwater robotics work with their autonomous underwater vehicles uh, under an uh, Office of Naval Research uh, grant. And by coincidence or by chance or whatever, however you want to designate fate, we uh, happened to find out about each other um, uh, and when I went over to look at the equipment and what they were capable of doing, um, and when they heard what we were doing, it was um, sort of love at first sight in the sense that um, we have the mission and they have some powerful underwater tools um, that can greatly uh, expand our underwater search capabilities. Up till that point, we were doing um, underwater grids. Uh, obviously, 
that limited uh, the underwater grids are limited by depth and visibility, uh, and uh, we um, and we had been successful, but it takes an awful lot of time. So at the time, they could uh, do twenty uh, square kilometers um, a day um, with their vehicles. Now they're now they're talking about uh, up to 160 square kilometers a day. So the technology has been uh, dramatically increasing even in the last few years. But uh, we did some initial work that year together, um, and uh, starting in 20 that was in 2012 and 2013, we got together again um, and started finding airplanes. So and we've been together ever since. Um, we, we really have uh, three teams that work either in parallel uh, or together or in series in the sense that Mark and Eric um, will go to different parts of the world. Eric tends to go to the Pacific and Mark more of the Euromed area. And, uh, and then the Project Recover team follows up with uh, recoveries, um, that's one of one of the areas that um, we work together with. Sometimes, all three units will collaborate together. Uh, we've been together in Papua New Guinea um, and in the Solomons. So, I mean, right now um, we are getting ready to go on a mission uh, to Palau uh, in in just a few days, uh, but. Uh, we have missions now in over 21 countries around the world uh, in various stages of uh, um, of the process. Mm, that's great. I, and that's neat about the connection with Palau. I, I don't know if you knew this. I think you did. I, I think I shared this with you. But during my last few years at NOAA, I, I visited there. I met. I, I actually ran into Eric Terrell there. And he was doing some of his oceanographic research. That's kind of the connection that brought you together. I was there to chair a meeting of the U.S. Coral Reef Task Force. There is such a thing. It's a very cool uh, organization to promote coral conservation across the U.S. And our, our compact state allies being Palau, Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands. And at that meeting, actually, um, we were I, I got to scuba dive on in Palau's National Marine Sanctuary and appreciate the the beauty and the pristine nature and the import of those coral reefs and the need to protect them. And so we ended up doing a lot of great work after that for coral reefs all around the country, inspired by you know, what, what conservation measures can do. Um, and so that, that was neat. I had not known yet before then, or known at the time about the search efforts, and I wish I could have joined you uh, at the time when I did, but uh, we'll be looking to do that in the future, let's hope. Um, well, there's a lot of territory to cover because I'm really interested to hear the metho methodology of a, any given mission and, you know, through a, an example that maybe is most interesting to you both. So let me ask Derek, I, I think that first mission sounds really neat. Can you kind of walk through the methodology of that Corsair and like how many times you dove on it? How did you hear, even hear about it? Because you do a great deal of research before you even go on a search and then actually recover. Because what are the steps in that? What were the steps for you? And has that changed? Over time, the methodology hasn't changed too much. Uh, I think uh, we continue to hone it, but the technology that we use to execute the missions is really the the big game changer over the years. the The Corsair that I that I mentioned was actually in a mangrove jungle, uh, but even the land missions and the water missions, the the approach to them are the same. 
we start, you know, somewhere deep in the archives, um, gathering information, and we gather as much historical information around losses as we can, and we add that to a database. And that includes, you know, combing the archives for information, but also interviewing um, a variety of people. Uh, when Pat started this, he did a lot of interviews with living veterans and firsthand witnesses. Um, sadly, those witnesses and veterans are few and far between these days, but the good thing is we have a lot of information uh, recorded from those interviews. But also when we work in countries around the world, uh, we'll, we'll speak with, with locals and that can be you know, uh, hunters that might frequent an area or fishermen that might frequent certain parts of the sea that know it like the back of their hand. And they'll have all sorts of information that could lead us to a potential discovery, um, whether it's something that they try to avoid because they snag their nets on it or th things like that. But no matter what, um, we'll build a case and we'll gather as much information as we can. And we assess a number of cases every year. Today, we have about 600 cases in our database associated with about 3,000 missing Americans. And we'll, we will prioritize those cases based on a number of factors. Ultimately, it comes down to, you know, what's the highest likelihood of success? And that could be access to a region, information available, tools and resources available to execute those missions, personnel available, all sorts of things like that. But um, we want to prioritize those because we are a, you know, a nonprofit at heart. So we have to be as efficient as possible. And another thing that we'll do is we, we do what we call campaigning. So we might go to a place like Palau where there's a number of losses. So if we're doing a search mission uh, with an AUV or something like that, perhaps we can search an area that could have a number of losses in it or more than one loss in it. Um, and we'll, we'll search that area um, using those robots and then um, gather the information from that and typically in the form of side scan sonar and assess that data uh, for things that look like they're um, man-made, you know, or not natural. Uh, you know, most of the time when you're looking at side scan sonar imagery and it might be a plane wreck, um, it doesn't look like an airplane. Sometimes it does, which is a, a, rare, a very um, nice day, but most of the time it could look like a coral head or rocks or other things like that because a lot of times these uh, planes hit the water very violently and broke apart. But either way, we're looking for things that look like they are man-made or not natural in that environment. And we'll, we'll note those and um, we'll investigate points of interest given from that information via scuba or potentially an ROV or another piece of equipment um, to verify whether they're man-made or not. Once we discover a site, um, then we go into the process of trying to determine exactly what it is, um, which type of aircraft is it, and then narrowing it down to uh, exactly which aircraft it is. Now, um, we look for aircraft because, um, you know, it's a lot easier to find an aircraft that might have been missing for seven or eight decades than it is to find an individual that might be missing during that time. Um, also, the records related with these aircraft losses are, are very well kept. So once we can determine which aircraft it is, uh, we know exactly who is associated with it, whether there's MIAs associated with it. Um, once that's the case, we fully document that site, and now it's ready for a recovery operation. And then again, it's kind of going back to the drawing board, working with the Defense POW MIA accounting agency and the appropriate authorities um, in the host nation to plan and execute a recovery mission. 
And those are all done you know, using you know, archaeologists on hand to ensure that it's done correctly and documented correctly and recover the appropriate materials, whether it's osseous remains or other identifying artifacts that might be associated with remains and all that stuff is transported appropriately back to the United States where an identification is done blindly in a lab at the Defense POW MIA County Agency or DPAA and those labs are located in Hawaii or uh, Nebraska. And that's just so interesting to me uh, because of that uh, connection that so many people in the country have with people who have served. It's interesting. I'm going to, tonight I'm going to be speaking at a uh, cadet um, dining out for a Navy junior ROTC um, uh, unit uh, that's in a local high school. And I was just looking at the guest list. There's there's almost a hundred of these folks in this high school that are, that are in the junior ROTC and the, and I asked them to indicate whether they had a military, they had military in their family, and I mean ninety percent of them did. It was just, of course, that's that's obvious. You know, you would think someone in the ROTC probably has someone in the military, but it's a good hundred people in this high school that ha- have that, and probably more. And that's just something you see all around. So what you do is so meaningful because it connects to so many people. Now, granted, not everybody has someone in their background or family who's missing in action, but uh, from what I've seen of your results. It's not the number is really large, um, Pat. I think you told me what was the number for the total number of missing in action in our country across the all the wars. Uh, since World War II, there are eighty-two thousand Americans um, missing in action um, around the world, um, mostly in the Pacific and and Euromed, but literally all over the globe. Golly, that's such a big number. And, uh, and Derek, you used a term that I had never heard, but I knew exactly what it meant. Um, it was ambiguous loss. Um, can you just define that for our audience, what that really means and what, how, you, how your work somehow uh, kind of comforts that? Yeah, there's a, there's a reason that we started using that term. And, um, you know, we have a lot of academics in our organization, people that have spent a lot of time studying and over the years, we started recognizing um, themes in the experiences of the Gold Star families that we've interacted with, uh, very common experiences across the board. And um, we thought it would be important to start documenting some of this information. And so we started diving into the research to see if anybody had done any work around that. And there had been some work done around um losses associated with MIAs or, as you mentioned, ambiguous loss. So somebody that uh, is expected to have passed away but is missing. There's no there's no body, if you will, that was brought home. And there's other cases of ambiguous loss. Let's say a, a child is kidnapped or something like that. And also cases where the person is there but um, they lose their, their identity, somebody that might be suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that. And the reason that it is unique is um, when, when the person is lost, they're expected to have passed. However, there's no proof of that. And the family and the individuals directly associated with that loved one um, experience that loss differently than you know a, a casualty of war that might be brought home, in which case there's a body. People know that the person is lost roles change within the family unit, ceremony around the loss takes place, the community around them knows how to interact with them in our own traditional ways and cultural ways. But when somebody is lost, of course, there's all, or an MIA, 
there's this hope that they somehow survived. And there have been cases like that, but few and far between. Um, and so they're kind of frozen in this moment as not only individuals, but as a family. And that grieving process is interrupted. The community around them doesn't really know how to interact with them around this MIA. And then that is passed from generation to generation. It isn't just something that's experienced by those firsthand uh, people that knew uh, or were related to that loved one. Um, that grief is passed from generation to generation, and it's very much suspended. And so what we've realized is, you know, families reach out to us on a regular basis, and we and we respond to every inquiry that they have. Many times it's, you know, I lost a loved one um, during, you know, World War II or perhaps Vietnam or Korea or another case, um, and we don't know what happened to them. All we know is they were lost in MIA, and that, that was it. And many times we don't have information related to their loved one. But the first thing that we do is um, acknowledge that that person was lost and confirm that in our statement and confirm and acknowledge their sacrifice of not only the person that gave their life, but also that family as a whole. And you'd be surprised at how impactful that simple interaction is. And then it goes even further from there when we have information to provide to that family or in the perfect case when a repatriation occurs and that community and family comes together to not only memorialize that loved one, but to celebrate um, their coming home. Um, it's absolutely incredible to witness, but it is a unique case. It's different than just a, a cat, not just a, but a casualty of war. Um, it's a different loss and a different experience that's very unique to MIA families. Yeah, gosh, I, I, I understand this, you know, and so just for our audience, again, we're talking to Dr. Derek Abbey and Dr. Pat Scannon of Project Recover. Uh, this is a nonprofit that is using blue tech to, and other means to repatriate, re, to recover the remains of fallen service members missing in action. And uh, with missions all around the world, not in the Pacific, most of the origins are in the Republic of Palau. And uh, I wanted to ask you, Pat, um, if, if there was a, a specific mission, just an example of a mission, a family, a, a service member, name them, please, if, you, if, you, if you're allowed to, um, just so our audience really get a good feel on what we're talking about, the personal aspect of it. Is there one you might want to share with us? Uh, absolutely. Although there, there are many families now that, you know, we could similarly talk about. Um, one of our earliest uh, finds was of a, another B-24. Um, it took us 10 years to locate it, again, using grid searches. By the way, um, the year that uh, Eric Terrell and, and Mark Moline started working, we found two crash sites underwater in three days. Gosh. So, that's using great. underwater robotics. So wow. 10 years of grid searches, three days uh, with underwater robotics. That oh tells gosh. you the scale. Yes. Um, but we found it. Uh, it, it had, um, we had a, a map drawn at the time in the after action report that placed it in a certain area of the water. Uh, I had interviewed a number of veterans um, who really couldn't place it any differently. Um, but the, the, the short story is that it was about two miles off 
and and that's a that's a large area for grid searching. Um, but we we um, when we when we located it, it was very clear the entire aircraft was there. It had broken in half um, just above a coral head, so one half of the plane was in the front and in, in one side, and 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 the other uh, on the back side. And um, when we started looking. Um, uh, our gu- underwater guide, a Palauan, reached in and, and pulled out what he thought was uh, um, a pipe, and it turned out to be a human tibia. Um, and so we knew, obviously, that there were remains. I had located a parachute, um, and as I pulled on the shroud lines, the, the parachute emerged and, and it was burned. Um, so, that, you know, it really kind of um, burned an image in my mind, if you will, of you know what what uh, must have been happening when that plane crashed. Um, one of the one of the members uh, of that um, uh, team was uh, uh, Sergeant uh, Jimmy Doyle. He's from um, uh, Texas, Snyder, Texas, and. Um, he uh, was normally a tail gunner, um, and uh, on this particular mission, he was the nose gunner. And um, we had met the family um, at one. I had met the family, the Doyle family, at a reunion in San Antonio, Texas, a number of years before, and um, and so they had been following what we were doing. Um. And, you know, we were pretty excited about this, uh, locating this crash site since it took us so long. Well, the, um, eventually, um, the time came to, um, to let the Doyle family know once we had sort of all of our, um, paperwork done and, uh, we did and the son of Jimmy Doyle, who was a college coach, I mean, a high school a football coach in Texas, learned how to scuba dive in a, in a rock quarry in the wintertime. He was about 65 at the time. And he came over and um, the president of Palau heard about it and dove with him, literally held his hand. Um, and and uh, we took him around uh, to, the, to the plane. At the time, we thought, he was in the tail section, but um, but uh, Tommy Doyle, the son, was able to see the entire uh, crash site. You can imagine the emotions of uh, of actually looking at your father's grave at that point. Um, and uh, we we came up and um, over a period of uh, three years, I believe. Navy salvage divers were brought in by the Department of Defense to um, to uh, remove the remains on the aircraft. And um, uh, interestingly, when they went into the uh, tail gunner area, they couldn't find anything. And um, we didn't. And and uh, and the team really worked hard because they they were aware how how. Uh, uh, important it was that uh, that Jimmy Doyle be found, if at all possible. Uh, and you know, they're they're supposed to be emotionless. They're supposed to be, 
you know, unbiased, but, you know, again, even, even scientific objective divers um, really get wrapped up in, in, in these, uh, in these matters. Um, anyway, they recovered all the remains they could recover. And it was only after the DNA analysis was done that it was determined that Jimmy Doyle, in fact, was the, in the nose turret um, and um, not in the tail. Why he flew the nose that day, of course, we'll never know. Um, but, uh, the, the, uh, family, um, held a ceremony, uh, in Texas, a little town in Texas. Um, and, um, the, um, the army, um, came out from Fort Hood and, and really did a spectacular, um, to- um, uh, uh, showing uh, a gathering for for the family the, the um, at at a, lo- at a local church and what was really interesting was when uh, when Jimmy was taken to his final resting place the, the entire community um, turned out how they even know about it I I don't know but um, it's it's really something to see when you leave the church uh, all the way to um, the cemetery. There were people lined on the roads with American flags. There were Girl Scout units and Boy Scout units um, all along the road um, honoring uh, Jimmy Doyle and, and his family. Um, Gosh, the, that's the, just so uh, special. Yeah, the, and then sort of to cap it off, we've we've stayed in touch with the Doyle family and. Um, Tommy's son, Casey Doyle, is now a lieutenant colonel in the M- Marine Corps, but he's also a working team member of uh, Project Recover. He's he's joined us to help us search for other families. Gosh, so it's, it's an amazing story. Uh, Pat, I just can't commend you enough. I mean, and that, that is just one of your missions and all those you affected and inspired. And that's such a great characteristic attribute of our nation. And, uh, and you're, you're just in the front lines of, of that effort. I love that. In fact, it sounds, I, I think I know this story and if I'm wrong, forgive me, but I believe you profiled his story in your film, uh, to what remains. Is that correct? That's correct. He's, um, uh, Casey Doyle is, um, I think the first person who actually speaks, um, in, in the interview, and you, you bring up you bring up a good point um, about the film to what remains um, in that uh, the I can describe the impact on families um, and I've been doing it for a while um, but it really comes ho- hollow compared to when you can actually see the impact of the families themselves. And, and that's what's so special about To What Remains, that the producers were not only willing to uh, capture what we're doing in the field, but to wait the years that it took for the remains to come home and be identified and repatriated to show the impact on the families. Um, and, that, and that documentary captures that, that impact. And and although families are different all over the United States, um, I, I think I can safely say um, the uh, the families are forever changed uh, with repatriation, and we've seen it time and time again. I, I I don't know an example where it hasn't happened. They um, put on a shelf the emotions of 
70 or 80 years ago. Um, but when it became real, those emotions were taken off the shelf. And, and you see it so strongly in the movie. You do. It's a wonderful film. I and thank you for inviting me to the screening in downtown DC a few months ago. Interestingly, I also work with a nonprofit called Force Blue, and they're wonderful. They connect veterans to ocean conservation missions like restoring coral reefs in a way to help to heal the veterans who are suffering from any kind of trauma or post-traumatic stress, but also heal the ocean. And they've, they've started expanding. And one of the programs they started was an ocean conservation school. The first class was last month, and they opened up four student um, positions to for training in, in, in scuba diving. And, um, and, and they decided to dedicate it to Gold Star families. Uh, and for the audience, Gold Star families are those who have lost a, a service member um, in combat. And the... Uh, and it's in the words the families used after the first course were just what you said, you, you know, after this, this training that we're, where we were trying to help their family heal and bring closure after their, one of their, their, their family members had fallen is exactly what you're doing. And they said, you changed our family forever. And that's, that's just such a really tr tr treasured uh, uh, aspect of what you do. Um, and so let's talk about this film. Let me go back to Derek, uh, the CEO of Project Recover. Derek, you're, um, I went to the screening and uh, you were not there in D.C. as Pat was. You were actually in Pearl Harbor because it was, it was on Pearl Harbor Day that that screening occurred. And you were with the Secretary of the Navy who showed interest. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that, uh, that screening, but then also what the film and the, the kind of campaign you're conducting to show that film around the country and heighten awareness of, of what you do in terms of recovering and telling the story of, of our MIA. Yeah, it was, a, it was a surreal day to wake up in Pearl Harbor on the 80th anniversary of the, of the attacks and then also spend the day on Ford Island with the Secretary of the Navy as well as... Um, the director of DPAA joined us and they were incredibly gracious with their time and their words and their attention. Um, they both sat through the entire film. They, they gave introductory words and words at the end and, and spent some time with the, with everybody that attended. It was a very, very special day. And since then, since that uh, Pearl Harbor day, we have been sharing the film uh, around the nation and and really for the reasons that Pat outlined it, we think it does an incredible job of highlighting highlighting the work that the or the impact that this work has on um, gold star families as well as the community. So we've been doing a lot of focused events and every single time we share the film with an audience, it seems like three to five other events uh, sprout from that uh, people attached to organizations or other groups of people that want to share it with them. And so we've been spreading the word about the film and, you know, even that 80,000 plus number that Pat mentioned earlier, it might not seem that large. I mean, it seems very, very large to us, but the impact of this work is, is well beyond the 80,000 people that we're looking for. It's the millions of family members, gold star family members that are out there waiting for answers and the community around them. And, um, you know, as Pet mentioned, when you witness uh, somebody's repatriation, um, it's a life-changing event to witness. And it doesn't matter if it's, 
you know, Snyder, Texas, like he was outlining in the case of the Doyles or Arlington National Cemetery or, you know, Finley, Ohio or other places like that. Um, it's, it's more than just a family event. It's a community event. Um, so families come together from across the nation. Sometimes they, they haven't seen each other face to face or haven't seen each other in years. And they come together and memorialize and celebrate the loss of their loved one. But then the community also um, circles around them. And it's this unifying impact uh, that occurs. And it's something incredibly special to witness. Um, our, our colleague, Lauren Tricosta, coined this, where she said it's the second wave of impact by this uh, MIA service member. We know the, the freedoms and the liberties that we live with on a day-to-day basis because of the sacrifice made by those that went before us. But when these MIAs come home, it's the second wave of impact where this unifying um, you know, celebration and memorialization occurs. And it's something that I've never witnessed before um, in other ways. It's just, you know, especially during divisive times that we have today, it's, it's really nice to witness. And um, we think it has this healing impact on not only individuals and families, but the communities around them and the nation as a whole. You know, we, we believe that when you don the cloth of uh, our nation and swear no to the Constitution, that we as a collective nation make a promise to that individual that we'll do everything that we can. Should they fall in battle, we'll bring them home to their families. And more than 80,000 cases and promises remain to be kept, and there's no expiration on that. So we're going to keep on doing what we can. And we haven't come to the, you know, come up with the best solution on how we heal from conflicts. And, um, you know, we kind of look at the smaller portion of our population that participates in them directly, our military and the families around them. But really, we participate as a collective. And it's still 80 years after World War II almost. And, um, you know, we still have a lot of healing to do. And so um, this is just one way of coming together and uniting and healing as a collective. And so, you know, you, you start looking at that 80,000 number and not included in that is another 18, 20,000 training losses that are just as, as missing to their families um, as those that are lost in combat. And you start looking at that, how that number expands over generations since World War II and the number of family members that are impacted. And and we know it's, it's more than one in a hundred. So every time we're at an event where we're sharing this film, somebody will come up and share the story of a lost loved one and multiple people will come up and share a story of the their lost loved one and many times they they think it might not apply for some reason that's common uh story with uh, mia families where you know this person's lost i don't know if there's any reality to it but it it's important to to hear that and have an impact and and let them know that efforts are still taking place to to find them and bring them home and and we think that means a lot to the community, and it's something that that'll bring us together. We haven't met anybody that doesn't believe in the mission. Absolutely, and uh, you said such a good thing there. You know, this is definitely a tough time uh, in our country, and if any ways to unify our country, we need, and you're doing it, and I just love it. It's just so impactful. You you mentioned a couple of things. I just have to comment on you know the training missions definitely, and this happens often. I. On my ship, uh, amphibious assault ship in the 90s, uh, there was a mid-air, mid-air collision off the ship of two helicopters. And you know, that was just one example. We've all seen this in the military. That happened, sadly. 
And I actually was invited to go this, this summer to a, a, a dive to recover the remains of a Tuskegee Airman who crashed in Lake Huron. I couldn't make it, but we're going to try to do another dive like that uh, in, uh, in this summer, uh, this upcoming summer. So I really hope to participate in that. And I know you've done your, we, we talked about this when we met last about your supporting those missions. Um, and then previously, when you were talking about Navy salvage divers, Pat, I just have to throw out there, my, my wife was a Navy salvage diver, and she had to recover the remains of a more recently fallen um, accident victim, a mishap, an air collision. Uh, and that's just not easy to do, but so important. And that's and she was as grisly as that is. Um, she, those divers who do this, and they do, Navy divers do this often, sat, unfortunately, but fortunately they do it because it's so important. And um, yeah, and, and so Pat, uh, or at least uh, Derek, or either of you who wants, they're, they're, you're, you're going to screen this film. You've been screening it around the country to what remains Project Recover. I just want to make sure we kind of get, get that out there to our listeners and have them share, encourage them to share it. Are, are there any ways, um, like what would you suggest for our listeners to do in terms of being able to see it or learn about it and, and learn about you? Uh, let me go to Derek first. Well, first I'd say um, go to projectrecover.org and they can learn a lot about our organizations. They can read some of the stories that we've talked about today and, and several others. And of course they can learn about where we're sharing the film. Um, the good thing is, is we're, we're screening it around the country. We continue to screen it. Pat and I will be in South Carolina tomorrow and we're doing a, a, an event on the USS Yorktown the day, day after that. Um, That's great. But now it's available on Amazon, uh, Apple TV, and Google Play. So now people can watch it from the comfort of their home, uh, stream it, and or buy a DVD or whatever, anything that they want. So it's available to the public now. Anybody can go out and purchase it. But if there's ever any question, of course, they can go to our, our website, projectrecover.org, and learn about how to watch the film. They can also learn about missions that we are on or recently went on. Um, and we're, we're always trying to share the stories of these incredible people that we're, we're looking for, the families around them, and this important work. Mm. This was just masterfully produced. So for our, our listeners, it's visually uh, spectacular because a lot of it takes place in, around the Republic of Palau uh, in the waters, uh, uh, scuba diving, but also um, on the land in the mangrove forests and, and groves, pardon me, and also... Uh, uh, just the wonderful human stories when you reconnect with the family members. It's just moving in so many ways. Highly encourage it. Um, and and so interestingly, so so Pat, you had mentioned to me that now Project Recover is seeking to grow. Uh, that's why I've, I've sought membership on your advisory council. I wanted to help you, and this is my first step in that effort. And um, I would what 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 are your goals, if you will, in terms of that growth? What what might uh, our listeners, anybody, you know, if you're, if there was somebody out there who wants to contribute to this cause, like, what are your goals for that growth? And what do you, what, uh, what might uh, listeners be able to do for you? A couple of things. One is, um, again, go to projectrecover.org. Uh, and, um, and there are really two ways people might think about contributing. One is through, we're, we're a not-for-profit organization. And so uh, contributions are, um, are, are gladly accepted. We, we, um, these missions are, um, expensive from the standpoint that we have to take teams all over the world. Obviously underwater missions tend to be more expensive than, um, 
than land missions, but uh, and and recovery missions are more expensive than generally search missions. But um, contributions definitely help the organization. I would mention that the movie is really not just for say military minded folks or people with military backgrounds because to Derek's point um, if if one in a hundred Americans are directly uh, affected uh, by uh, you know an MIA loss that 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 is almost that touches every community in this country um, and it's very much an American thing as opposed to uh, a military um, exclusive um, event. So, you know, we encourage folks um, of all backgrounds to come. It's, it's a, as apolitical as you get. Um, we've, we've seen Democrats and Republicans hugging each other, um, uh, you know, in, in, in honor of these MIAs and, um, uh, and, uh, and we're very proud of, uh, to be part of this, uh, this documentary. You should be. I, I, I think this is such such good work. And uh, I yeah, I'm excited to, to carry this forward with you and be a part of your team and, um, and see what else we can do um, to help out all those families that are still feeling that loss. You know, I, I can't help but comment on current events. Uh, and and I, I, as a former military officer, am watching what's happening with Ukraine and Russia right now. And my heart goes out to the Ukrainian people and, and army and um, what astonishes me, and it's incredibly representative of the power of your cause, is uh, how disrespectful the Russians are for their own forces, Le- leaving so many of their soldiers behind. I mean, with thousands, and and it's something we we we. There are stories, and you know many of these of our forces uh, executing missions at great risk to many to recover just one. MIA. Um, and this happened. This has happened in Afghanistan and Iraq many times, and uh, and no one questions the the no one questions that mission in our military to leave no one behind. Uh, everyone will commit and take risks to do that. And and the contrast I see with the Russian army is stark and incredible to me. But what's so powerful about that is that you therefore see. That, that that manifests in the difference of the army's effectiveness. The Ukrainians and, and their commitment parallels ours, whereas the Russians, their disregard for their own people is directly reflected in their ineffectiveness as a force. They're getting creamed. And I, I just hope that our government continues to support the Ukrainians and nearly increases it. Um, fascinating re- kind of a parallel of what you're doing and the national attribute and character that it represents in the U.S., and what we're not seeing uh, over in Russia. Well, we're coming to a close, even though I could just feel like I could talk to you all day, Derek and Pat, but um, I just wanted to ask you uh, each, if you had any final thoughts or um, recommendations or requests for the listeners. And uh, so first, maybe over to you, Derek, uh, CEO of Project Recover. Um, Anything last that you want to share with us? Yeah, I'll, I'll add, you know, Pat mentioned that how important this work is and, and um, that we've scaled significantly in, in the last 10 years or so where we've gone through one mission a year to multiple missions a year all over the world. And time is not our friend. So, you know, these sites are eroding. 
uh, every single year. And then the development of across the world is encroaching on a lot of them. And so we're, it's important for us to continue to scale. We've been successful in initially scaling to the uh, level that we are, but we need to continue that. So that's something that we're going to focus on is, you know, the, the, growth of this organization to continue to have an impact in this space. And so, um, as I mentioned, this is a nonprofit organization and we rely heavily on the charity of the public and um, anything that anybody could do to support, we would greatly appreciate. And we're going to continue to do this work until we get that number as close to zero as possible. Gosh, well said, Derek. Uh, I'm all behind you. I hope our listeners are too. Uh, Pat Scannon, Dr. Pat Scannon, uh, co-founder of Project Recover, and uh, any final words that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, One other thing, um, Derek mentioned DPAA, and that's the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency. That's the official Department of Defense organization uh, tasked also with recovery of MIAs. We work very closely with them. We've created a long-term relationship and partnership with them. Um, uh, and um, although uh, they have uh, done a lot of work, there is a lot more that needs to be done, which is, which is why Project Recovery exists. We feel that the more people we can find, the greater the impact, um, not only on the families, but the American community. And, and I think I want to just finish by saying, I think for every member of the team, uh, it's important to say it's our way of expressing our gratitude to these Americans uh, who lost their lives for our country and to their families whose consequent sacrifices have also had to be made. So it's an honor for us to be doing this work. Well, thank you so much, Pat, and thank you, Derek. What a special show in this latest episode of the American Blue Economy podcast. We looked at Project Recover, an organization committed to leaving no fallen service members behind. They're a wonderful example of how the same blue tech that contributes to the American Blue Economy also upholds one of our nation's highest values, to leave no one behind. I want to thank our sponsors, the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. Please join us for our May episode, where we will look at the value of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility to the American blue economy. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time.